Have you ever been watching a very suspenseful film? One of those films that your body begins to respond and you start moving and you're very uncomfortable. You don't know if one person's going to get got by whatever malicious force is there. Right? And the ones that are suspenseful are the most difficult to sit through, aren't they? What do you typically do? Does anybody talk sometimes? I do. Because it kind of takes me out of the suspense. Right? I, I fidget, I do something, I look at something, I may talk to the person that's watching the movie with me. That's a mechanism that we use to take ourselves out of uncomfortable places. Right? And sometimes we do that in worship. Sometimes we take ourselves out of those instructive, uncomfortable silences where God is desperately trying to speak, perhaps in a still, small, or a thin voice, as Tip read from 1 Kings, or the way that the Spirit spoke to Jesus when he was alone. Sometimes that is the only way that we can really hear what it is we are being called to do. And sometimes, as beautiful as the many distractions in our life are, and they are, <laughs> I can't pretend they're not. Distractions are beautiful. The, the images that I get to see every day, the first of which is my wife and Luke, uh, they are beautiful. They are beautiful to look at and gaze upon, just like I enjoy looking at all of you. I enjoy seeing you here this morning. But sometimes what we see and what we hear or what we touch can remove us from what's going on internally. It can take us out of that space where the Spirit is moving. And I want to invite you today to journey with me just a little bit. And I promise you I'm going somewhere. So if it feels that I'm too far afield, don't worry. I'm coming back. I'm hopefully going to tie this together, or more accurately, the Spirit will tie together today what I have attempted to discern and think on throughout the week so far. We're going to start... By talking about neuroscience, Dr. Cleve just like correct me wherever and other to a more versed in that field than I am. Um, but our brains are essentially a function, right? We talk about them as a substance, and of course you can poke at something and look at it, and there's a certain form that we visually translate. But they're really function. It's it's changing. In fact, our brains are changed. It's an endlessly reconfiguring function that enables us to navigate in a way that no other creature on Earth can. About 100 billion neurons, or something in that area, right, enable this function that we call the brain to operate and do what it does so splendidly. These 100 billion neurons help us to construct maps. Now these aren't maps only like the kind that you look at when you're trying to get from point A to point B. They're also auditory maps. They're maps based on touch, right? Tactile maps, okay? But they're not reality per se. A map and the terrain that the map is trying to get you across aren't the same thing, are they? 
the Word God and God are the same thing. Amen? Amen. So these maps are tools, beautifully, wonderfully designed to help us navigate a reality that requires that kind of translation. When I look around and I am truly enraptured at something beautiful or majestic like the song that was sung or a scripture passage that resonates very deeply with me. It's not so much the subatomic reality that I'm being fascinated by. It is the translation that is going on that I experience as meaningful. Do you hear what I'm saying? The, the map is beautiful and enables us to do things. We're all a little bit of cartographer, right? We make maps. It is what our brains do. In fact, we make so many maps that we don't ever have time to look at them. You know that? We just, that's all we do is make maps. That is all the brain does is it maps. It takes data, sensation from the world that we live in, and it turns it into maps. It's just churning maps out. However, we do see things and hear things and touch things, right? So some of those maps are selected. And I'm going to be a little creative. I don't know of a neuroscientist that would necessarily use this phrase, but I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't. Okay. <laughs> Our mind, and I'm not saying brain and mind are the same thing, okay? I'm going to distinguish them. Okay. Our mind, which is actually more akin in the origins of that word to soul, right? When you go see a psychologist, that word psyche or psuche in Greek refers to soul mind, the animating principle of who you are, what enables you to get up and move and shout and, and sing and smile, right, and be motivated to do anything at all. The mind curates, that's the word, curates. You know, like a, a curatorial uh, position in an art gallery, it selects paintings. It can't take all the paintings necessarily that an artist has created but it selects paintings with a theme, right? Whatever the theme might be, right? It could be, you know, space and time and post-21st post you know, century, you know, human existence, you know, whatever. I mean, that's a little weird, but <laughs> these themes, they, they range, okay, far and wide. And so the curation process is a creative process, is it not? And a theologian or a pastor is equally creative when they engage the text. And you know what? It's not just us that's creative. We're all creative. You know, when I, when I hold a text in my hand, when I hold the Bible or any other text, but let's just say the Bible because of where we are, I'm not just looking at a text. I am experiencing a relationship, right? One that is fundamentally about listening, okay? to a word that is invisible, breaking through the visible, and moving that part of me that I don't often pay attention to. So this beautiful process of map making and that really mysterious process of curation, which they still don't really understand, neurobiologists, neuroscientists, don't exactly understand the relationship between the biochemical processes and this thing called I the first person consciousness, right? When you and I come in and we greet each other and I say I and you say I, that I is a mysterious thing and I don't think we probably sit with that enough. It is a weird, mercurial, 
we hold on to very tightly, don't we? In fact, on the fundamental level, what we might call core consciousness, okay, we do things that are basic to our survival. They're essential. But as we grow up and we mature, as we become adults, we develop a more complicated story of who we are. We discover things about ourselves and are forged in this beautiful thing called life. And the spirit participates, or certainly wants to participate, in making us anew for new tasks and new calls. But sometimes we really cling to old maps. Sometimes we have selected maps at some stage, and we don't really want to depart from those maps. It's hard because we're used to those maps. We've made marks on those maps. We've made notes on those maps. We remember journeys that we've taken on those maps. <laughs> we don't want to let go of those maps. Those maps mean a lot to us. And yet, we've produced a million maps since then. <laughs> and your mind has certainly tried to select maps. The spirit has lifted up maps for you to use for the new things that you're being called to do. But it's too easy, perhaps, to look away from those new maps and, and focus on these old maps that are being generated. That's not a, an accusation. <laughs> it's an observation. I do that. Amen. I have my tapes. Those are the auditory maps. I have my visual data, right? The way I want to look, the way I think we all should look and comport ourselves. And let's pretend like we all sort of operate with these things. We know you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> but they're there. There are these maps we have. And we try desperately to let go of those maps. And the spirit, I would suggest, is constantly nudging us to let go of those maps. What informs that curation or that map selection process? A lot of psychologists might tell you, with good reason, that it's a defense mechanism. Right? We were hurt. We've been opened in our lives. We start open, vulnerable as little kids, and we greet the world with enthusiasm and excitement, and we encounter some awful stuff. We're told some things about ourselves. We go through things that hurt us and wound us, and we begin to develop a rough exterior and there are certain maps that we discover along that difficult journey that allow us to keep from getting hurt again. Amen? Amen. There are these stories, there are these maps, there are these practices that keep us safe. They do. But they also keep us from living. What we end up doing in the same way that a pond that doesn't have a regular influx of water does is it stagnates. It can't support life anymore. And so all that it breeds are parasitic organisms at that point that are feeding on it. It can't produce anything new. See, because there's no water coming in. There's no new maps and sounds that come in to restore reinvigorate the life that once was. Now we can use a variety of metaphors. I think you get 
what I'm saying. Sometimes it's hard to be in silence because sometimes that's where those new maps are waiting for us to pay attention. <laughs> it's too hard to look at those because they might be asking something of us. It might even ask us to invite some new practice whether it's deep possession or fasting, those new maps might invite us to do something that we're not comfortable with. In fact, they might even invite us to do something that we think we've done before and it didn't go well. And so we'd rather not revisit that map. Yeah. That map's full of uh, landmines, you might say, right? There's, there's places on that map that we know are going to get us hurt. We know there is indeed a Golgotha. We can't hide from it. We're about to prepare ourselves to journey towards it. And yet, we also know, I hope I'm not letting the cat out of the bag here, we know there's resurrection, right? <laughs> we know it doesn't end at Golgotha. We're told that time and time again, Jesus tells us that if you want to gain the world, you might do that, but you're going to lose your soul, you're going to lose your life. But if you're willing to let go of that old map, sometimes right, you find resurrection. Sometimes you find that the new map has led you into a world of possibility, a world of magic and beauty that you could not have anticipated based on you know, previous maps that you've used, right? You know the little maps that sit inside of your door or in your glove box, you know, when you pull them out, you can't even read them anymore, right? But you hold on to them. So, that's neurobiology. <clears throat> maps, maps, maps. What does that have to do with prayer? Okay, what does meditation, what does mapping have to do with prayer? I want to suggest today that prayer is first and foremost a relation with God. It doesn't matter what your linguistic choices are. It doesn't matter your posture. It doesn't matter the select groupings that you assemble yourselves in. Prayer is first and foremost a relation with God. And so prayer, arguably, is that relationship in a variety of different forms and structures and sometimes paying attention, cultivating that capacity in ourselves to pay attention and be in silence opens us up to a deeper relationship with God. Because God is not just the God of our joys and our happiness, right? God is the God of all that other stuff. As the song that we just sang said, God of those weary years, right? And those trying times, God of pain and suffering. God is the God of all. God is all, as Pastor Leslie has told us. And so why would we want to close ourselves off to the all that is God in those moments of silence? Because it hurts. <laughs> it's because it's hard. It is not easy. So what I'm inviting you to do isn't easy. Just like sitting in silence. I mean, you thought that. That might have been easy, right? But if we had stayed there a few more minutes, it might have been less easy. What's he going to do? <laughs> Where are we going? Simone Bay, who was a favorite thinker of mine, she died far too young in her early 30s. She was a French thinker, a feminist, mystic, 
philosopher. She wrote that all tasks, all studies should be conducted with the primary aim of cultivating our faculty of attention. And it doesn't matter if you're the best mathematician or the best singer or the best painter or whatever it is you're doing, but that you should do that task trying to cultivate your capacity to pay attention. Why? For prayer. She says that prayer is the orientation of all the attention of which is the soul is capable toward God. Prayer is the most radical, demanding kind of attention that you are being invited to pay to God. God that is all. Which includes those places that hurt, that pain, but also the joy and the promise. In Christianity, this is not a new thing that I'm suggesting. <laughs> In fact, it's a very old thing. We have forgotten it. In fact, one could argue that with the speed of modernity in the 16th and 17th centuries, right, we just began shouting and moving and doing, and we've continued to do that, so much so that our capacity for attention is no longer viewed, right, as a virtue, but is rather seen as something that inhibits us from being as productive and busy as we might otherwise be, amen? <laughs> If you sit around paying attention too much, somebody's going to call you something, aren't they? <laughs> Maybe lazy? Be ineffective? Not inspiring. <laughs> I argue the opposite, right? Inspiring, which means to be inspirited, is precisely what paying attention is about. Because centering prayer is not about you praying, it's about the Spirit praying in you. Centering prayer argues that every prayer is impregnated with love because we are taught that God is love. So God, right, is in us, right? Love is in us. We are impregnated with this unconditional love that wants to reach out and explore new territories, that wants to do new things. But we keep holding on, right? We keep delaying that birth, don't we? We keep pushing it back. Nope, not yet. Not ready. Not ready. I don't have everything in my life ready. I don't have the baby room. <laughs> hey, TV and I were talking the other day. We don't, you don't ever have everything ready. <laughs> you can go to all the classes. You can do everything you want to be an uncle, to be a parent, to, to, fought, to take on any major responsibility for another creature. Maybe even for a church. <laughs> yeah. None of us are ready. <laughs> and yet, we're all being called to do that which we never feel ready for. Amen. 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 And the That's comforting good. thing about centering prayer is that God, the Spirit, is working in you. And that it's not about how careful I choose my words today. And it's not about all the notes that our wonderful choir can hit. It's, it's not about the clothes I wear. And it's not about how we sit and how we move. It is about what God is doing in us, through us, with us, for us. <coughs> and sometimes against us. Amen. Right? Amen. That's those things that make it difficult sitting still for too long. <laughs> God may be trying to get our attention, and we would rather not pay attention. <laughs> so, 
is Christianity has this practice of centering prayer. And I won't spend a lot of time on the specifics today, um, but I, I do know that I would love to uh, share and learn more about these practices like Lectio Divina, which is a way of reading a text that is not focused on the processing of content, but which is focused on listening. You see, texts weren't as common as they are now. You look everywhere, we got words all over the place, right? For most of the history of the church, that wasn't the case. And so when you found the text, it was so treasured that you would sit still with it and you would listen. You, you operated under the principle of charity. You believed that there was something that God could say to you in that text. In fact, nature itself was viewed as a text, right? And that God was desperately trying to say something to us through the natural world. This is a part of our faith. This is a part of our history as Christians. And unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, we have paid less and less attention to that part of our history and that part of our faith, just like we paid less and less attention to some of the new maps and the new things that are going on, because we already know what we're doing, right? We already know what we're comfortable with and what protects us. And so it's very difficult to rediscover or discover anew Practices or maps, beliefs, the perhaps moments when things might be otherwise than we thought they were. I'm going to bump ahead to neuroscience again. I told you I was going to bring it together somehow. My understanding is that our brains create networks through synaptic connections. A dendrite and an axon, right? These are the, the fibers that come out of the neurons, and they are responsible for sending signals and receiving signals, right? And these connections are called synapses, right? So these connections that occur create networks. And the word from neuroscientists is that neurons that fire together, right, <laughs> work together, link together, create connections together. And neurons, that fire out of sync, don't link, <laughs> okay? Practice increases or amplifies the plasticity. That plasticity, that, that funky word that we don't use a lot, right? It just means changing constantly, just like plastic can be molded, melded, shaped, right? So that's what's happening. When we practice certain things, whether it's centering prayer, whether it's just quiet time of any sort, Things can happen that we weren't expecting and that we may not even want, okay? But we can also open up new vistas, new horizons that we weren't paying attention to and couldn't see. The unexplored horizons are what plasticity and what change and what God is all about. That's what we have been all about. Everything I've heard, felt, and experienced here, right, is about an excitement about all the things that we want to do together and that we believe we can do by the grace of God. So if neurons fire together, they wire together. If they fire out of sync, they don't link, which means they don't create communities and networks, okay? So imagine that centering prayer, which helps us to pay attention to ourselves and the spirit and each other, more effectively, maybe that's going to help us, as God's neurons, <laughs> fire together, right? Maybe, 
the beautiful dynamism that is the brain, right? All the beautiful changes that occur that allow us to do new things that we wouldn't have thought possible 10, 20, 30 years ago. Maybe that's what's happening here. Yeah. Maybe if we pay more attention to what God is doing, which does require a bit of silence, not all the time, but sometimes. Maybe if we listen more than we speak, maybe we can begin to fire things. Maybe we won't talk over each other or under each other or around each other. Maybe we'll actually see each other. Maybe we'll learn more about each other. Maybe we will become what Jesus said we would become. Maybe. <laughs> you might wonder, why is this sermon titled <clears throat> Davis in My Hands? It's all been leading up to that. My understanding of Deus Ex Machina is that it's a trope from the theater. Right, Christine? <laughs> My friend who is in the theater came to see me today. So Deus Ex Machina is about bringing the God in on some machines, right, in this dramatic way that resolves this conflict all of a sudden, right? Somewhat magical. So the reason I titled, titled my sermon Deus in Machina is because God is already at work <laughs> in this machine, in us, right? I'm not saying you're a machine, I'm just you know, using the phrase here, okay? Your body is a little machine, but we, we can talk about that later, okay? I'm saying that all that creative curation and the opening up of unexplored horizons and distance, that's God, that is spirit, okay? God's not coming from outside of that process, God is coming from within that process, right? God is sort of bubbling right up. You know that stuff that you don't see and you start seeing bubbles? That's the spirit. That's God. That's what's happening right here. That is the beautiful process of growth that, is, that does have pain. Believe me. Right? You know? <laughs> I'm living it. I'm living it. Um, but it is beautiful. There is so much life on the other side of that growth that I know we can feel, taste, touch, and see at this point thanks to the spirit. And I invite you to open yourself to new ways that God may be working in your life. I invite you to spend a little more time in silence. You don't have to say anything. Just listen. Right? Listen, just like we did a few minutes ago. Listen to your body. Listen to the sounds around you. Listen to that, that soundtrack that you may not hear otherwise. And if we do so, I believe, not maybe, I believe, that we will become, that we are becoming, right, Pastor Leslie? That we are becoming the body of Christ.